This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live recordings from Talks and Ideas events across the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby. At Antidote 2018, American writer David Nywitt, Australian journalist Jeff Sparrow and British writer Ed Hussain came together for an event called Fringe Dwellers and Fanatics. They had a robust discussion of the ways that extremist ideologies are influencing Western governments, including Australia. They're joined by the Saturday paper editor Madison Connaughton to consider where this might be dragging the centre of global political debate. To start, I want to talk about this term extremism. It kind of comes up in both your books, Dave and Ed, um, but I think it's a curious term, and I'm, I wonder if you think it's a useful term, um, if you think it captures the nuance and complexity of some of the things you're writing about, and I guess what your working definition of extremism is. Maybe Dave will start with you. Um, yeah, it, it is problematic in that it's, it's, it's rather overbroad, and it doesn't really sort of explain a lot of, you know, it doesn't really get to the dynamic, but uh, it is kind of reflective of some of the limitations of the English language and that we don't really have a good word for describing people who have been radicalized, which is more or less what we um, use it for. I, I, I think there are two components to extremism. One is the, the sort of ideological one that... that um, Basically, the, the ideologies themselves are, are sort of extreme versions of otherwise mainstream politics. In the radical right, for instance, people we consider to be extremists are people who aren't merely opposed to abortion, but actually want to have abortionists executed. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not merely opposed to civil rights for black people, they want to have black people eliminated from society. Um, you see what I'm mm. saying? That it's essentially already accepted versions of, of sort of uh, ideological positions taken to their extreme. There's also the behavioral component of it as well. That is, um, people who behave in very extreme fashion, usually with violence, or um, other you know, threats and intimidation. There are extreme forms of behavior. So that's how I use extremism. That's more or less my working uh, definition of it. Jeff, do you have a similar working understanding of extremism? Yeah, I don't find it very um, useful at all because as a term, it's implicitly counterposed to... The extremes are implicitly counterposed to the sensible centre, which I don't think is a very useful way to understand what's happening in the world today. I mean, look, I'll give you a concrete example from a newspaper article that was in The Guardian um, yesterday, Ben Doherty reporting from Nauru. I don't know how many people saw this, but um, the father of a 12-year-old refugee girl who attempted to set herself on fire in Nauru says she is not receiving medical treatment and is refusing to eat and drink. Her desire to die is very high, her father said through an interpreter. The girl's father is also trying to care for her 13-year-old brother, their mother, both of whom are seriously mentally ill. Doctors warned nearly two weeks ago the 12-year-old needed to be moved off Nauru, but these recommendations have been overruled by the Australian border force since she remains on the island. So here we have a situation where a child, a mentally ill child, is trying to set herself on fire, but 
she's been kept on Nauru to deter other refugees. This is a centrist policy. This is a policy being implemented by the Australian government with the bipartisan support of the Australian Labor Party. And so to counterpose the sensible centre against the extreme in that situation is not very helpful at all because what we have now is a situation where it's the centre that is putting into the mainstream of society the idea that foreigners are so dangerous that we should be prepared to let a child burn herself alive rather than allow the floodgates to be breached. And when you've got that happening in the centre, it's not surprising that it's... Um, revives extreme bright ideas on the fringes of society. So the, for me, the, the juxtaposition between the centre and um, the extreme right is, not, is no longer particularly useful to describe the situation we're facing. Because if you have people on what we understand to be the left and the right agreeing on an issue, finding compromise, like offshore detention, a policy of indefinite offshore detention, that is seen as, as the centrist policy rather than a particularly extreme policy. Yeah, I mean, uh, Tarek Ali's got an idea of the extreme centre, which I think is quite useful in this situation. We, so, we, we, for instance, there's a, a bipartisan consensus in Australia now um, about um, free market ideas that would have been anathema to, Rod, to Robert Menzies a couple of generation a generation or so ago. Not only that the free market is the basis of the economy, but market ideas should be injected into every aspect of society, from sexuality to the way that we take care of old people. And that's so foreign to the way that most people think about their lives and the lives of the people that they care about that it induces a reaction from the fringes as well. So again, it's there's a radicalism that's now at the heart of our societies that I think is producing some of the um, phenomenon that Dave talks about in mm -hmm. his book. And so it's merely counterposing the sensible centre against the fringes doesn't really explain what we're facing. Mm. Yep. Ed, I'd love to bring you in here. I mean, your working definition of extremism, but also, I guess, a little bit about what Jeff is talking about. Uh, I um, find much of what Jeff just said hard to digest, um, not least because uh, as a Muslim, there is something called the center, and Islam was revealed, and in the Quran, there's refer references, wasatiya, or the middle way, and there's a huge emphasis on centrism. And in the, in the Greek tradition, one of the reasons why Aristotle stood up is because between, he identified multiple extremes in every phenomena, and from which he identified his golden mean, or his center. So being a centrist uh, is supposed to be a good thing, and I'm you know, sat in the center here, and I find myself <laughs> you know, being, a, being a general centrist. But the Prophet Muhammad warned against extremism. So we're, we're, uh, within the Muslim tradition, at least, we're very conscious of the fact that, there are, that um, Islam was revealed as an antidote to extremism. So the Prophet said, and be wary of extremism in religion. Um, those of us who were extremists in our younger days saw ourselves as revolutionaries, never quite as extremists. So I, I fear that people who are in the Marxist tradition or in the Islamist tradition or in the far-right tradition also see themselves as some kind of revolutionary trying to undo the, uh, undo the center. In the Muslim tradition, there's a long history of the extreme movements, starting with the Khawarij onwards. Um, my working definition of extremism in the religious context, but especially in the global uh, context of Islamist extremists, remember there are now about 1.7 billion people around the world who are ordinary, mainstream, normal, rule-abiding, compassionate, kind uh, Muslims. 
among whom there are a, a tiny minority who are extremists, and we identify them through their links to the Khawarij, and I go into that in, in, in the book in great detail. But more importantly, in terms of a working definition, I would say someone who is A, literalist in their social approach, so anti-gay, anti-women, anti-Jewish, anti-religious minorities, two, seeks to impose that literalism by taking control of government, in other words, taking control of the state to impose their, impose their rigidity. And my last point would be that on, on, on the attack on the free market, um, I've just come about three, three weeks ago from Edinburgh, and I sought out Adam Smith's home just to see the, 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 the city had, that had given us the, probably the strongest free market thinker, because the whole point of Adam Smith's writing and giving birth to the free market was to liberate people from the control of the nobility, the control of the aristocracy, and side by side with his book on the wealth of nations, he also had written the, 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 uh, the, the book on understanding moral sentiments. So it was, there was a moral impetus to do away from commercial society and go to a, go to a society that was, do away from mercantile society and go to a more commercial society. So as a beneficiary of Margaret Thatcher's free market homeowning policies and allowing my family to be, and my father to be able to buy a home, which I then inherited and allows us to be you know, a wealth, wealthy, property-owning democracy, I would just kind of caution against the un un unleashing of attack after attack after attack on, the, on, on, on a free market and a free world that allows us to prosper and be who we are. Could, um, no, go ahead. Uh, Jeff, I'm, one of the things that, of course, I deal with is, or have to deal with, is the fact that in fact, many of the government policies that we now have in place in the United States are what I would call extremist, uh, particularly our current immigration policy that has led to children being put in cages. Um, I don't, I have no problem describing that, even though it's from the government, is as extremist. I don't think necessarily that just because it comes from the government that it's centrist. <sighs> Well, I don't know. Then it becomes a little bit of a debate about definitions. Um, <laughs> doesn't it? We have a situation, for instance, when um, Trump was first elected, one of the phone calls he made was to Malcolm Turnbull where they were discussing um, refugees on uh, Manus Island. Yeah. And um, Trump couldn't at first believe the Australian policy because yes. it was so cruel. And when it was explained to him, he said, yes, um, you're worse than I am. We should do that too. Yeah. And they took on, you know, elements yeah. of the Australian refugee policy. But it seems to me a little bit strange to, to call policies such as the Australian refugee policy, which is supported by both major parties, a fringe policy. Do you see what I mean? Like, okay, we can debate yeah, whether you're quite yeah. extremist or not, but I think we have to recognise this is where politics in Australia is at now. Sure. To oppose mandatory detention in Australia makes you on the fringe. Supporting it makes you mainstream. Sure, although it's important to understand a lot of people I would describe as extremists actually see themselves as representing the mainstream. They see themselves yes. as uh, conventionalism. It's a key component of, of authoritarianism. Well, I guess this goes to my point, though, about these terminology not being very useful. It becomes a little bit of an Alice in the Wonderland, sure, Alice sure. In Wonderland yeah, discussion yeah. as to who's fringe and who's mainstream, right, right. When, particularly when we're talking about figures like Trump. Sure. I do yeah. want to come back to the impact of capitalism and the free market and, and how that plays into this, but uh, you use the term um, literalist, Ed, and I think that that is something that came up in your book and, Dave, in your book as well, um, in an interesting way. So, Ed, you describe kind of, kind of these um, 
often young men who um, have a very literalist interpretation of the Quran. And Dave, you describe this group who uh, are very literalist uh, in their interpretation of the Constitution. Yeah and of the yeah. Second Amendment, um, <laughs> I, the originalists, the text, textualists like Antonin Scalia, um, but obviously there's an extreme version of that. Mm -hmm. I, I just wonder where you think that is coming from, that reversion to literalism, um, I guess both within um, Salafi Wahhabism and within the alt-right in the US. Why returning to those, those texts and um, potentially misinterpreting what they are trying to instruct. I don't want to speak for David because I'm sure you'll do so remarkably well, but I think there are similarities <laughs> and, and the great similarity yeah. between literalists in the religious tradition, be it, be, be it, you know, in my own religion, Islam, or I mean, if I may say so, evangelical Christianity, um, is that there's an imagined return to a glorious past. Right. And it's that underlying emotional impulse of glory, of self-recognition, self-worth, and the desire to dominate that is then used. It's an emotional position, starting position, that we've been outcast, we are no longer powerful, we need to correct the, the misdemeanors of the world. So it's, 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 it's what Plato talked about as thumos. And that's the starting point. And then they turn to texts, be it political texts or be it religious texts, mm -hmm. to justify that position. And sadly, in the case of religion, because of the long and rich history of the Abrahamic faiths, you know, we're talking of, of a 1,400-year tradition in, in the Islamic case and you know, almost a 6,000-year tradition in, in, in the Jewish case, but there's, there's layer upon layer. So all of the old Hebrew prophets are recognized within the Quran. So what you see is a literalist reading of scripture on, say, for example, government. There is no reference in the Quran, which is a 6th-century text, on government. There's a reference to in al-hukmu illa lillah, that, that the rule is only for God. Now, that's one of the first verses that they take. The Khawarij took that in the 6th century and used it to devastating effect, rising against the Prophet's own family, and there's a lot of bloodshed in early Islam because of misapplication of this verse by a very, very tiny fringe minority. And today, the Islamists, be it from the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and their various offshoots, or be it the Saudi Salafis and, and, and the jihadis, i.e. ISIS and, and their many offshoots, they refer to this verse and use others to back up the claim that government must be for God alone. Okay, even if we accepted that, well, God hasn't come down on earth to govern. Well, no, no, we are, we are God's people. We govern for God. And so they empower themselves as God. So the literalism then manifests in interpreting other verses of the Quran uh, in relation to, say, uh, punishment or to, or, or to gender or to Jewish people as religious minorities uh, or even Christians, indeed. So that's where the literalism starts. Uh, a, an emotional position vis-a-vis -vis historical glory, an imagined historical glory, by the way, um, and we can go into that later, uh, but, but, but then it, it finds itself in, in political expression that we must control government in our name to represent God on earth and then rule over everyone else. And those who disagree with us, interestingly enough, uh, are, are traitors. So whether you're, you're a traitor on, on, on the basis of disagreeing with them on their interpretation of religion and therefore liable to punishment. So that's where the literalism is derived from and that's how it finds manifestation. I just have one follow-up, and I, I wonder if that's a, which is it a chicken and the egg situation, is the, the interpretation of, of the text to justify the violence that someone wants to perse persecute, or is the, uh, the 
text misinterpretation driving the violence? Which direction is that going? Because your first book was obviously about your own radicalization as a teenager. Uh, I wonder if you can speak a little bit to the which direction it goes in. Is it text to violence or, or violence being justified well, by text? Yeah, so if it, if it is text to violence, I mean, if that was the, the, the argument, and many do make that very important mm. um, uh, is, uh, assertion, my question is that, well, if it's text to violence, then we've got 1.7 billion Muslims around the world, most of them, or almost all of them, proud of their religious heritage, most of them take it seriously. Uh, if not all of them, uh, at least hundreds of millions of Muslim clerics exist, and uh, just this year we had a hajj with almost 3 million people because they're acting on texts. Because they take the text seriously, therefore they take the long and arduous journey to, to Mecca and then to Medina. And similarly on abstention from alcohol and from pork and whatnot. So if, if the text was so strong and driving action, uh, as it does in other spheres, then presumably it should be act, uh, uh, forcing action in relation to those who disagree with, 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 with hardline interpretations or those who have a position on non-Muslims, Jews, Christians and pagans. We should, most of, many more of us should become violent and suicide bombers. And that's the logical conclusion of a text-driven argument mm. that you should have, I mean, we should be having all-out apocalyptic murder out there, you know, because 1.6 billion Muslims would go fanatical. You know, it won't be dwelling in the fringes, it'd be dwelling in the, firmly in the centre. But that's not happening because it's the other way around, that most Muslims uh, who are extreme and who are fanatical and who are in these jihadists go to the texts to find justification. And I, I say that as someone who was born and raised in the Muslim tradition. My father was an observant Muslim. My mother, mother was a regular reciter of the Quran. From a very young age, I was steeped into that tradition. I, and you know, I memorized large chunks of the Quran. I mastered Arabic. I had tajweed classes. I had fiqh classes. There was a jurisprudence and uh, mastering of the Quran classes. And at, at no point was I encouraged to either take up violence or support violence? Yes, there are violent verses in the Quran or verses referring to violence in the Quran. Yes, there are verses that have negative reference to Jews and Christians. And yes, there are verses that, verses that call for violence. But we always understood this was a context in 7th century Arabia when the Prophet Muhammad was punished in the most arduous of terms. And this, rather than turn the cheek that Jesus did in a three-year ministry, Muhammad tolerated the punishments and the torture in a 10-year ministry. And on the 11th year, he, he, he fought violence with violence for, some say defense, some say offense. Whatever the reading of history is, that he did take up arms. And permission was granted to him. And that's the language of the Quran. Permission is granted to you. In other words, it's not the norm. It's the, it's the, it's the exception. So... Um, and yes, I was drawn into that worldview, and yes, I embraced the narrative of you know, destroying Israel, overthrowing Western governments, removing every Muslim government, and creating a caliphate. Now, when I wrote The Islamist, uh, it came out about nine years ago, most people thought that I was being an alarmist in, in exposing this rhetoric of a caliphate in the underworld. But as we saw with ISIS, that is not uh, a, a deluded pursuit in, on the on the. On the, on the part of extremists and, well, we, we saw ourselves as revolutionaries. We never saw ourselves as extreme or as radical. Um, now, that said, uh, you know, I think it was Bill Clinton who said there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with, by what's right with America. I don't want to croach onto your territory. Yeah, but, yeah, no. But, but, but uh, similarly, in Islam, there's nothing wrong with Islam that cannot be corrected by what's right in Islam. So whether, whether it's the text or the action or the other way around, the, the, the antidote 
And I don't use that because the festival is called Antidote. I, I genuinely, I genuinely <laughs> the antidote to extremism and terrorism is also within those very same texts. In other words, the Quran and the, the literature that the Prophet Muhammad left behind. Well, I have uh, two kinds of literalists, really, that uh, I have to cope with in dealing with uh, right-wing extremism. And one of them, some of them are, are religious. Uh, we have, you know, the uh, fanatical, uh, uh, actually we call them Christian reconstructionists, mm -hmm. but they want to impose a, a Christian state on the United States. Uh, and they use, well, we used to call it a fundamentalist uh, interpretation of uh, the biblical scripture, um, now we tend to say literalist or, you know, various other, evangelical. But either way, it's, it's this insistence on this notion that these words mean one thing and one thing only. And, of course, anyone familiar with language and the nature of language is that, well, that's not actually how language works, right? And for many years, and, you know, over the course of time, especially in the case of the Bible, which has been gone through multiple translations, and you can actually find very, various versions that actually use a lot of different words, um, it becomes clear that, you know, those, those interpretations are very much open to uh, their own in interpretation, but the fundamentalists always insist that their interpretation is the only proper one. Mm. And, and the, the fraud, and of course then the other kind of literalists that I have to deal with are the ones that you mentioned, uh, we call them constitutionalists, or they're, the constitutionalists are very much a component of the patriot militia movement, uh, and they insist on this very, on the, a very particular interpretation of what the words of the Constitution mean. But actually, and this is where the fraud of it all is kind of revealed, is that, that in reality, constitutionalist interpretations of what the Constitution says have never been accepted in United States courts because, of course, the courts understand how the law works. They understand how the, the Constitution works, and they understand that it, it can change over time, and, and our understanding of the meanings of those words can change as well. And, and in fact, there isn't a single component of the core constitutionalist worldview that has been legitimated at all by American courts. It's, it's very much outside of the actual mainstream. Except so. perhaps the Second Amendment. Yeah, possibly. Well, actually, no, no. Uh, they believe that, unlike the courts, that the Second Amendment actually gives you the right to own any gun, any weapon you want to. So I've heard them actually argue that the Second Amendment gives you the right to own a tank or a, or a missile or perhaps even a nuclear bomb. Mm. So, no, no, the courts don't. No, I've never agreed with that. So, yeah. I think the, the Second Amendment thing is particularly interesting, though, and it, 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 the language of, of that amendment, um, I should have written down the exact text, but it, it's often said as the right to bear arms, but yeah. the actual um, amendment is longer than that and speaks to the need to maintain a... a, a well-regulated militia. Yeah, and what about, they always say, well, what about shall not be infringed? Mm. Don't you understand? That's one of their favorite lines. And I go, well, what about well-regulated? Don't you understand? <laughs> but the militia part of it comes up in your book a lot. The, the, yeah. the, the militia movement, the patriot mm -hmm. militia movement in the US, it was something 
something that I hadn't read a lot about before I came across your book, but yeah. I think it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's an often overlooked part of the radical right in the United States because we've actually tended to focus on the alt-right. Uh, you know, that's been the sexy story. But the reality is that the Patriot Militia Movement worldview is, is really widespread in rural America. And this in, is people sort of organizing themselves into small groups that are well-armed to very you know, protect armed. the border or yeah. protect certain properties. Well, or, yeah. Protect Just have guns. <laughs> they, yeah, they, they, they actually, what they argue is that the Second Amendment is there to prevent... Uh, the government from imposing imp uh, any suppression on them. So I, I call it the insurrectionary uh, or insurrectionist interpretation of the Second Amendment, which is that, you know, somehow the founding fathers wanted people to be able to have guns so that they could overthrow the government that they were creating. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it's nonsense, of course. It has no grounding in reality, and yet this is what they very deeply believe. And you'll hear people at the, in the NRA, you know, Dana Lish, the uh, NRA spokeswoman, has said this exact same thing numerous times. So it's actually being promoted at this very high level. You'll hear people say it on Fox News, but it has no actual basis in reality. Jeff, in the green room you mentioned... Not to brag that we were in the green room, but... Uh, <laughs> it's pretty special, folks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned that you went along to one of the Milo Yiannopoulos talks in Australia and, and the crowd there sort of surprised you. I, I'm curious about the element to which the internet has played in um, spreading, I guess, this extreme alt-right, extreme Islamist um, version of, of the world and to everyone on the panel, but particularly, I think it was interesting what you were saying about who was in the crowd at that talk. Yeah, people might have um, seen that Australia has, has registered on the radar of all these sort of fading right-wing hucksters. It's a place you can come and you can shield your wares and you'll get good crowds because, you know, we had Lawrence Southern, we had, um, we're going to get... Um, the Proud Guys, Stefan Molyneux. Stephen Molyneux, we had Milo. Um, and so they're all coming out here and they're all making um, big bank doing so. And they all and got visas, interesting. Yeah, they all get, they all get visas. <laughs> um, Slow on the take. But. The Milo event <laughs> was kind of interesting because his shtick is so shameless in the sense that he will do the same act that he does all over the world and he'll drop in a couple of topical references so you know he'll say something about a local feminist but otherwise it'll be the same thing he's done um, all over the world and I was expecting it to be largely to made made up of kind of angry young men who are the sort of stereotype of the alt-right there were quite a few angry young men but what surprised me was the extent to which he was pulling a kind of suburban crowd as well including kind of families who knew not only all his greatest hits and would laugh when he would say, you know, he would say feminism is cancer or whatever, you know, all these catchphrases that he's established over the years, but they also knew um, his various run-ins with other figures in the American alt-right. And I was listening to the conversations when we were in, in, in the queue. They, they were tuned into this far-right kind of multiverse through platforms like YouTube. So these are figures who wouldn't get a run in the mainstream um, Australian media, by and large, but 
if you're accustomed to watching Milo's YouTube videos, you'll be served up videos from other alt-right personalities mm. and you quickly become familiar with the whole universe of these people and you side with one as opposed um, to another. And um, I think a lot of people who went to the Milo event, there were a lot of people in the media who had convinced themselves that this was going to be a bust, you know, because no one that they knew were the slightest bit interested in Milo. <laughs> but when you went there, that actually they're pulling quite big crowds and there are lots of sort of alienated suburban families who find this message as clearly fraudulent as it is. And the Milo shtick is so shamelessly, transparently huckstering for money. There's defamation here, but anyway. Um, we are being streamed live. <laughs> <laughs> and Anne Coulter joining him this trip. is another trip Anne Coulter, yeah. So it's yeah, going that, to get that, better. That, 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 that's right. Lovely. But they, they're clearly finding an audience in ways that you wouldn't kind of um, expect. Did you speak to anyone in the crowd, anyone who was kind of there, and why they, what brought them to the show? Yes. So um, for a lot of them, it's sort of familiar things. Hostility to political correctness was a big thing. It was very hard to find people to tell you what political correctness actually was, but everyone is against it. Um, yeah, there's no right-wing version of political correctness, <laughs> is there? Yeah. Um, <laughs> there was a lot of sense that these were people who might, in other circumstances, have supported um, Pauline Hanson, but the American versions were slicker, if you know what I mean, that, yeah. that Milo is more entertaining than a Pauline Hanson or a, or, or a Peter Dutton. They always do it better. I mean, yeah. They that, always that, put on a show. That, that's right. And, um, you know, the stage show that he puts on is very rock and roll. You know, he comes on to music and it's, it's sort of a cross between, like, a far-right rally and a stand-up routine. So, yeah. Did you find that this similar, um, I guess, education on the internet is playing a role in extremism within Islam, especially for, I guess, younger, younger men. I guess it's mostly men. It, it is mostly men, although, you know, we've, we've seen women go and join ISIS, mm -hmm. uh, wanting to be jihadi brides, even if it's a second wife or a third wife. They're happy to take that position. Astonishing that, A, that aspiration and, and B, that position can be uh, found in, in, in mainstream society today. But I think that's part of the problem, that um, young Muslims, in the past, if you had a question, you would go either to your parents or to an imam in a mosque who'd undergone you know, at least six or seven years of training and therefore would understand scripture in its whole. Uh, and Muslims, I mean, always saw, I mean, I'll give you a very quick example. There, there are lots of problematic references in hadith literature what the Prophet Muhammad allegedly said or did not say. And again, in, in, in the House of Islam, I, I talk about that in great detail. But, but there was always the, the imam or the, or the jurist who was seen as a, as a GP or a general practitioner. So you would go if you had a question on, you know, on life, and, and, and the GP would address that by going to the pharmacist and, and selectively choosing what was relevant for the context. Now, everyone's a GP and everyone's a pharmacist in the Muslim tradition. In other words, we can just Google our problem. And the guys who are most active are called Sheikh Google now. In other words, you can just look up your question and bypass the 1,400 years of culture, nuance, history, tradition, grammar, syntax, poetry, allegory, metaphor. All of that is just you know, gobbledygook. So you just go straight to the source and often a very literal interpretation of the source. And the Archbishop of Canterbury is a good friend of mine, Justin, and he often says that, that the literal interpretation claims that it's not an interpretation, that it's the true word of God. I'm afraid that is an interpretation. 
So that interpretation wins out. So the, the internet is crucial. The, the, the Google search is a brilliant, you know, part of the problem. But, but you're right that the use of YouTube, that, that many of the ISIS jihadists and others then found Anmullah who then allowed, introduced them to others. So there's a, the, 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 the modern algorithm is part of the problem, I'm afraid, that you, you, you go in searching for one item and it leads to a whole underworld. Now, at least with Rupert Murdoch and Fox News, and by the way, that's one of your exports, I always like it where in Australia people assume that, oh, Fox News and all that stuff in, the, in Europe and in America, we have nothing to do with it, you know, it's just uh, homegrown problems. I mean, you gave us Rupert Murdoch. Um, so, uh, at least with Murdoch, there was recourse. You know, you, you, you knew where the problem lies and you could identify it. With Google and YouTube, and you can't identify the problem. So, that is, ident uh, uh, without doubt, part of the challenge that Islamist extremists go straight to uh, the internet to search the question and then get connected to others who think similarly. And one reason why ISIS was, was so successful in taking off so quickly was the, the, the use of the online space. Yeah. And yeah, you open your book with a kind of a recounting of Dylan Roof, mm -hmm. who, who walked into a church in, in Charleston and opened fire. Yeah, the day after Trump announced his candidacy. Yeah. yeah. And he was radicalized to white nationalism, white power movements through the internet. He never really met up with any of these groups right. in person. Well, it's certainly something that we uh, have observed uh, in the last four years is that uh, a lot of these radicalized young men are uh, joining, are, are not joining hate groups in the way we saw before, rather they're becoming entirely radicalized online. And, and yeah, Dylan Roof is sort of the apotheosis of this, that you, know, you're, um, you don't have to join a hate group anymore to get radicalized. Uh, and in many regards, the internet actually plays really a central role in the spread of all this, partly through two means. One is, as with uh, ISIS and is Islamist radicalism, it is able to connect people from very disparate geographical locations and as well as uh, within the privacy of their own homes in a way that they're not exposed publicly when they join a, a, an actual hate group. Um, and this is something we actually saw really going back into the 90s. A lot of the original militia movement was... Uh, organized online. It was very crude back then. They didn't have social media. Uh, it was mostly, you know, email forwards and these very early versions of websites um, that enabled people to connect in ways that they never could before. And uh, it was also, of course, a way you could keep these very extreme views just sort of within your cluster. The other effect of the internet, of course, is what actually happens on the internet and the way people interact. Um, and that is that, you know, you, it feels like you're talking to somebody. It feels like you're having a human exchange, but it's actually just a, a simulacrum of an actual human exchange. It's because you're just actually exchanging with bits of information on a computer screen. You don't have the voice intonation. You don't see an actual physical presence of someone. Because of this, it's very, very easy for dehumanization to take place. And dehumanization is really so much of what drives uh, the radical right in the United States. 
I believe it's also a really key component of radical Islamism. And uh, that's, you know, this is uh, really a lot of what we're trying to grapple with is the extent to which uh, that sort of humanization takes place. And it can take place, it, it, in fact, as Jeff says, for us, the de demographic isn't poor people. Certainly with the uh, Patriot Militia Movement, it was mostly rural folks, but with the alt-right, these are mostly suburban kids. Mm -hmm. um, we ha I covered a, a Milo <laughs> event as well on inauguration night, 2017, uh, and it was extremely violent, turned out to be extremely violent outside. A man was shot about 10 feet away from me, and uh, it was rather frightening. And yeah, but inside, uh, Milo was, you know, I watched his speech and it was fundamentally incoherent. I, I couldn't understand what he was actually trying to say. Other than, yeah, let's hate other people. Let's hate liberals. So. If you do have a question, um, we're going to be taking some soon, so just make your way to the microphone closest to you. Um, but I think a, an important part of this conversation, both in Australia and the US, is the aspect of racism that is playing out here. Dylan Roof was a white supremacist. In Australia, a lot of the, um, I guess, fringe right, alt-right is being driven by Islamophobia, xenophobia. I, I'm not quite sure what the best question to ask on that is, um, given that we are a panel. Uh, Short on <laughs> Yes, exactly. But, I mean, I'm curious. Do you feel like... The liberal white middle-class person saying that the alt-right is a fringe and is a problem in America is trying to cast this off as a fringe problem rather than dealing with the underlying racialized element of uh, the hate and fear that is, that is driving this. Everyone's well, I, I mean, again, I think that comes back to where we started. I mean, I think if you had to number... The, the um, number of organised far-right groups or individuals in Australia, we'd probably be talking to less than a 1,000. So it's not a huge movement in Australia. But on the other hand, if you talk about, say, Islamophobia or if you talk about the rhetoric of white genocide in South Africa, we are hearing that, that now from the very top echelons of the Australian government. And that is mainstream. So, you know, when Peter Dutton says that people in Victoria are too... People in Melbourne are too scared at, to go out for dinner because of African gangs, this is a rhetoric that previously was associated with white nationalism that is now being voiced by a man who very nearly became Prime Minister a couple of weeks ago. So it's not surprising when this rhetoric is at the very heart of politics in Canberra that it gets a resonance um, well beyond the fringes of the far right, and it's also not surprising that the fringe far right can put themselves at the head of a broader movement when this rhetoric is being mainstreamed. So, you know, if you look back at Australia in the 1920s, a kind of um, baseline anti-Semitism was fairly normal in Australian society. You know, you would get people talking about the Jews dressed differently, they were linked to violence in the Russian Revolution, they had strange food, they had a strange religion. You don't hear that so much today, but you hear almost exactly the same tropes in every mainstream newspaper about Islam. And it's not surprising then it finds a resonance in the population more generally. So 
again, is that fringe or is that the mainstream? I think about that um, piece that I think um, a few weeks ago there was a huge um, a, a session at a, a mosque in Lakemba where thousands of people prayed um, and and it was for a celebration, but I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there were thousands of people and part of what they prayed for was rain to break the drought in New South Wales. And the Daily Mail chose to run that under the headline, praying for a rain bomb. Thousands of Muslims pray at Lakemba Mosque. And that I think that level of Islamophobia in mainstream media is, I mean, it can't, I, I'm a journalist, but I can't escape the fact that the media plays a role in this as well, in, in fueling this and mainstreaming it. Is it. Do you feel like it's similar in the US? Yeah, Fox News. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Pretty simple answer. Mm. Uh, and, and not just Fox, of course, but because it does, uh, Fox's standards creep over into places like uh, CNN as well. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of this is fueled by uh, this fear of losing a dominant position in society. I might add as well, this is also um, a profoundly misogynist movement, and I believe that's also the case with radicalism. Um, misogyny is really a big component of the alt-right, and it's always been a, a sort of an undercurrent within neo-Nazism, and going back to the 1920, or Nazism itself in the 1920s and 30s, uh, had this element of uh, control over women's bodies that was actually part of their thinking. So, and a lot of this, as I said, is, is about a fear of losing control, fear of losing position of dominance. Ed, what do you think is driving extremism, extreme Islamists? Do you, do you think it is, because it's obviously not f fear of losing dominance. I mean, Islam is one of the fastest growing religions in the world. I, f I feel like it's, it, I'm not sure what the, the driver is there. Uh, part of the driver is where, where we started, uh, a desire to dominate. Another is uh, a return to a, a past form of glory. And, and there are a whole range of factors um, you know, Western domination, but underlying it all isn't just grievances against the West, it's also a desire to, for, for them to become what we saw un, under ISIS control. But on, on what's just been said, I'd like to make a couple of remarks, if I may, and I, I'm, I'm sorry if this kind of breaks the, the beauty of the Australian consensus culture <laughs> that you have here, um, but whether it's politicians here in Australia, i.e. Pauline Hanson, I only mention her because she's the one that rocks up in our newspapers with her comments, I mean, and, and <laughs> appearing with a burqa in... in, mm. in the, or whether it's, uh, you know, Marie Le Pen in France, or whether it's the alt-right bigots in America, or whether it's the party in Austria that scored over 20%, and, uh, or whether it's the party in Germany that's on the rise. Um, across Europe, across the West, the, the, the new bigotry, the new hatred, isn't about black people, isn't about Sikhs, isn't about the Chinese, isn't even about the, 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 the hatred of the Nazis that led to Jewish people being killed. Um, it's about Muslims, and it's about Islam, and that's the new bogeyman. Yeah. And it's wrong, it's flawed, it's unacceptable. Yeah. And all of that said, we have to accept, and, and that's, I say this as a Muslim and a proud and observant Muslim, that often it's a sad and ugly reaction 
to terrorism and extremism. And we saw this after Charlie Hebdo in France. The, the Economist did a poll unrelated to Charlie Hebdo because they, know it's, they didn't know it was going to happen. And rates of anti-Muslim sentiment, by and large, in France were low. Charlie Hebdo happens, and rockets, uh, and the rates of anti-Muslim hatred plump, uh, you know, go, go up high, rocket. There's a correlation. Similarly, in America, 9-11 was abysmal, it was wrong, and should not have happened, and we should condemn it in, uh, in, in the strongest terms. And after 9-11, we saw a rocketing of Islamophobia. Now, what we had was George Bush at least going to a mosque and saying Islam and Muslims are not responsible for that, which I think is the right attitude to have. Mm -hmm. But now, if something like this happened, we can see Donald Trump's rhetoric being, you know, outdoing uh, the worst of the bigots in the last century. So we are in very dangerous territory in the, 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 the Islamist extremism and terrorism has had, among other reasons, been a cause for the rise of a very fascist movement across the world, that then paralyzes the center. Because if the center doesn't talk about it, I'm afraid there are people out there who are only too willing to talk about it. In the UK, it's Nigel Farage and others here. You've got the politicians that I've mentioned. Now, when the center does talk about it, it gets accused of being, being, being bigoted. We have got to find a way of our politicians, center left, center right, to talk about this issue. In other words, condemn the extremism and terrorism that comes out of Islamism and honor and allow for most normal mainstream Muslims to prosper and thrive as citizens, not as a collective group full of victimhood. And on the other hand, condemn the fascism and the terrorist-led extremism that's coming out from the far right, the Le Pens of our world, and the Austrian, and the, and the Five Star Movement in Italy, and the, and, and the, you know, the Deutschland First Party that's coming, or Free Deutschland Party, that AUD coming out of Germany. Condemn those. And unless we allow for that to happen in the center, in other words, we must have this conversation and allow for the extremes on both to be, to be suffocated. And I'm afraid and that there's an extremism that's not been mentioned here, and that's the extremism of the far left. When the extremism of the far left, i.e. the Red Alliance, wants to do a deal with the Greens, i.e. the Islamists, you suffocate everybody. And we've got to be open and honest and accept that in my country, people like Jeremy Corbyn are part of the problem. The mainstream Labour Party is now dominated by an anti-Semitic man and an anti-Semitic movement in the name of freedom of speech on Israel. You know, if you want to make deals with Hamas, Hezbollah, and other extremist terrorists in the name of peacemaking, then you should also be talking to the Israeli government because you don't make peace without talking to the guys who are currently in power. So we have a, th a triple threat, I'm afraid. You know, the, the, the extremist terrorists on the Islamist front and then on the far right and then also on the far left. And unless we're all conscious of this triple threat, I'm afraid we will be leaving our, uh, you know, a society that we should be conserving, a civilization that we should be protecting, to our children, our children's tr children, which will not be the harmony and the peace we've seen in the last 70 to 75 years. So the stakes are very high, and part of this battle is to understand what's going on inside Islam, and you have, I'm afraid, got to take sides in this battle inside Islam that has these external manifestations that occasionally sees the visit of terrorism in our cities and countries. Um, I yeah. don't agree with a word of that, but... Um, I'm conscious we have to get to questions, but yeah. you can wave your response into a res an answer to one of these questions. Well, I, I mean, in the Australian situation, I think it's really clear that... Or not. We don't... <laughs> oh, sorry. No, I, just... I might just take a question, sure. but I'm sure okay. you can... Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, perhaps we have someone at number two. Hi, <clears throat> thank you for this. I have uh, one question that has two parts. Maybe I'm sneaking two questions. Uh, my first one, which you have already, already uh, I mean, started talking about it, why 
the word terrorism is always reserved for Arabs and Muslims in our media. Even though the same act can be taken by others, it's uh, often described as loonies or mental health person or yeah. whatever. That's my Isolated question. incidents. Sorry? Isolated incidents, uh, uh, how we describe it. <laughs> that's right. My second question, uh, where do you think our uh, current... Uh, government is going, especially within the Liberal Party, uh, Morrison and uh, Peter Dutton and uh, Tony Abbott, and where we are heading. Are we going to the extremist position, or what are we doing? Jeff, maybe we can start with you. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot to um, unpack there. I mean, in, in, in terms of Australia, one of the things that's rarely discussed is the majority of terrorism historically in Australia has been committed by the far right. It's simply not true that the majority of terrorism <laughs> in Australia has been committed by um, Islamists of any kind. Um, but I go back to what I'm saying, what I said before. Actually, Pauline Hanson in Australia is the most overt racist politician that we have out there. Pauline Hanson is polling, what, 20%? If, if, if she's lucky, the real Islamophobic racism in Australia is coming from um, the government. And I think that's... I, I, I think until we acknowledge that, then we, it's easy to reassure ourselves by saying the problem is over there with this fringe far-right group. But it's not. The rhetoric that's coming out of Peter Dutton's mouth, the rhetoric that's coming out of Tony Abbott's mouth, the rhetoric that's coming out of Scott Morrison's house mouth is some... Um, you know, rhetoric that previously would have been reserved to the fringe. And it's the, the radicalisation is not simply about Islam either. It's also about refugees in Australia. Now, in some ways, I'd say that the, re the anti-refugee sentiment is stronger than the anti-Muslim sentiment. And I'm very, very wary of an explanation of this that starts by suggesting it's the fault of the victim. And terror has been the predominant um, mode of foreign policy discourse in Australia since then. Out of all proportion to the real threat that terrorism poses to people in Australia. And I know that's an unpopular thing to, 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 um, to say, but it plays a very, very useful role for, the, for um, the right in Australian politics. And I think in terms of where we are going, um, well, I don't think that uh, Peter Dutton's um, failed attempt at uh, the Prime Ministership is over yet. So I think that is probably where we're going. Jeff, if you were Prime Minister, would you impose any immigration controls in Australia? And if so, what would they be? What do you mean? No. See that? A simple question. Would you have immigration controls on Australian borders? <laughs> well, OK. Um, I'm not Prime Minister, so it's not <laughs> in some respects, it's not a fair question um, to, to ask me. But I think we're moving to a world where either we're going to have to double down on erecting Trump-like walls, or we're going to have to move to a position that allows people to immigrate. Any limits? Um, I would be much more prepared to open the borders than we are now, yes. I, I, don't, I don't see why that's a controversial position. Because I mean, in the UK and across Europe, this is the issue. So do we need a Trump-like wall? No, 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 no. That's between the extremes of completely opening the borders and completely shutting the borders. There is a sensible, controlled, caveated, thoughtful, need-based, assessed position on immigration. I'm not, I don't know your country well enough to comment on it, but I just hear from the left this thing about bashing governments on immigration. You know, 
but yeah, it's in Germany, one of the reasons why Brexit happened, by the way, sorry, and I will take more questions, I'll be very quick. No. One of the reasons why Brexit happened was because in 2015, there was uh, an influx, and rightful influx, of Syrian migrants coming in to Germany in the most horrendous conditions in Syria, and it was right. But what that led to was an uptick of all kinds of sensitivities in Germany, and the, the far right in my country saying, if we allow more migrants coming in, we'll see the kind of attacks we saw in Dusseldorf, in Cologne, happen in, in, in Germany after, uh, after Angela Merkel let in 1.2 million refugees in one year. Tony Blair, a friend of mine, I, I worked with him for about three years, let in almost 3 million refugees from 1997 to 20, 2007. When, when, when you shock societies out there, ordinary people, us as you know, thinkers, readers, you're, you're, we, you know, we're part of an elite that thinks about these things by virtue of you being here. You're part of that elite. You're reading, you're thinking, you're reflecting, you have an open mind. But go speak to the ordinary man and woman who's in, 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 the, in the UK or parts of Europe whose pub has been converted to a mosque or the church has changed. It does something to people's identity. Don't mess with that so readily and so often without a clear position on whether you would shut down immigration entirely or what number you're allowed to accept or not. I say so because in my country, the Labour Party and Diane Abbott, the Home Affairs spokesperson, was asked this question and she just said, oh yeah, we'll just open the borders and, and no limits whatsoever. That's not sensible politics. You know, politicians are about to be, you know, people in the middle between multiple options. If you don't have a better position, be critical of, uh, you know, be conscious of what you criticise because utopia isn't an answer to real policy and real politics. But, but Ed, we started this discussion with me reading you out an account of what's concretely happening here and now. We have a child who has set herself on fire. You're entirely right. I'm not taking away for a second. But, okay, but, but you're saying... There's a bigger picture. But, 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 but you're, you're saying that we shouldn't move no, to You're giving me an Australian specific. This is the current no, It's position. an Australian specific and you're right on the specific. My point is a generality and a global issue. We, we've got, uh, across the West now, anti-Muslim parties emerging and it's hitting on immigration levels and we've got to have this conversation. Okay. But, but not but without, but you, oh, I don't know what I would do. But you posed me a specific question. Let me pose a specific question to you. At the moment, we are detaining refugees in detention centres, Manus Island and Nauru indefinitely. People who have come to Australia, searching, they have been found to be refugees. They are now, we have children burning themselves to death on... Um, on Nauru and Manus Island. Do you agree with this or not? Absolutely not. Okay, well then... Why, why would you pose it as a moral question in the way that you do? Because, you know... But uh, this people... is what the mainstream in Australia says. Okay, well, look, I don't know Australia to comment. I know Europe and I know America, and there, you know, we could, we, you know I, I think what we should have is a caveated and controlled immigration policy that leads to integration, that leads to newcomers integrating and being part of society rather than blowing themselves up because they hate the other among which they reside. It's a real issue. We've got to be able to talk about it without feeling as though we're being racist or uh, uh, wanting to impose um, the, the, the kind of freedoms on, on immigration that your thoughts reflect. I'm just conscious we've got three yeah, people. And I don't sure. wanna... <laughs> Let's get one more question. Hi. Um, so I love the discussion, uh, particularly around the definition, like, you know, what really defines extremism. And so that's what my question's about. With what happened in the US with Trump winning, are we simply seeing a realignment of what is actually considered centrist? Maybe Dave, do you want yeah. to? Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good uh, question. Um, I, I do think, well, and going back also to the question about how do we define what's a terrorist? You, you know, I put together a database a couple of years ago, uh, or actually just got published last year, of domestic terrorism looking and using the FBI definition of, of domestic terrorism. It's insane that 
Dylan Roof was not classified as a domestic terrorist. And what actually changed the, the, the sort of public discourse on domestic terrorism was 9-11. Uh, prior to 9-11, uh, Americans understood that, you know, Timothy McVeigh and Eric Rudolph could be uh, terrorists as well. Uh, after 9-11, it became pretty much the dominant narrative that uh, a, a terrorist was someone of Arabic origin with a turban, basically. Uh, which is why, you know, we have Sikh taxi drivers being attacked yeah. uh, by thugs in the United States and being accused of terrorists. Um, so a lot of this has to do with media narratives and the way we discuss these things in the media. Uh, but it also has to do with, you know, the, the general framework of how we understand extremism. What Ed was saying, I thought about the three kinds of extremism, the radical Islamism and the uh, American far right. I think they're both actually creatures of the far right uh, and as well as the far left. Uh, who I can tell you are becoming, they're not nearly the problem in the states that the other, in particular, uh, the radical right is, uh, but they are becoming a problem. And the thing that actually unites all three of them is authoritarianism. And mm. ultimately, that is what we mm. are up against, is mm. democracy versus authoritarianism. Mm. Those of us who believe in democracy, those of us who believe in the values of democracy and, and democratic institutions are now arrayed against a, a variety of different kinds of authoritarians. And this authoritarianism is the trend, it's a global trend that's happening around the world, uh, and it's certainly not just in the United States, not just in Europe, and not just in Australia, we're seeing it in countries all around the world. And that is, that I believe is the real challenge that we face. So. Uh, potentially I have time for one more, just uh, keep it short. <laughs> Um, in Australia, um, Islamophobia and anti-refugee sentiment and anti-blackness all get a lot of attention uh, in the media and in conversation, and they're called extreme, as they should be. But um, my question is, why don't many Australians consider the government's policies about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to be extreme, extremist points of view? Because we have, like, more children being taken away from their families than even during the stolen generation. We have deaths in custody, which are now being counted by The Guardian. Um, but I feel like, what is it? Is it because they're not as internationally prevalent? Is it because um, of shame? Like, why don't we treat these terrible policies as like the Northern Territory intervention that's ongoing as extremist? I mean, it's a really good question if you go back to Pauline Hanson's maiden speech in um, 1996, anti-Aboriginal racism is a, um, was a major feature. When I went to that um, Milo Yiannopoulos event, that was one of his topical references, was to come out and say, um, uh, say some racist things about Indigenous people, which generated a laugh through the crowd. And I think, it's, 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 I think what you're saying is true, that it has been a mobilising thing for the, the far right here. And again, it's a sentiment that's been coming from the government as well. As you say, the Northern Territory intervention um, is something that very few Australians know very much about and would never have happened to any other population other than the Indigenous population. I think it's really clear. 
Unfortunately, that is all we have time for. Um, but there is obviously so much more to talk about. I'd like to, everyone to thank our panelists. While we've got you, subscribe, rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash ideas.